What I did with chapter 18 is I cut out some big chunks of it. So I mean, it's not that it all isn't important or interesting information, but I tried to concentrate on the stuff that I'd rather more likely test you on. Doesn't mean you're tested on all of it, but if you go look at the slides that are up on D2L, you'll see that about half of them are missing. So I tried to cut out about half of them so I could get this down to enough information covering the major points that I want to get through without going through. Normally it would take me about a lecture and a half to two lectures to do it. So. And we've only got a little less than one, especially if you want to do a quiz today. So that doesn't mean that the other material isn't important, but I'm much less likely to test you on anything that I don't have on here or go over. So. But what we're going to look at is cosmic evolution, looking at the ideas of life in the solar system, life in the galaxy. Right? You did that on Monday. You calculated how many intelligent civilizations there are in the universe or in the galaxy. Right? Got widely varying numbers depending on what numbers you put into the equation. But you can do it. The equation's exact. You can calculate exactly how many civilizations there are in the universe. Problem is, you don't know the numbers you're putting into the equation. So if this one could be 1 or it could be 1 1 millionth, makes a little bit of a difference in your final answer. But the equation itself, the Drake equation that you used, is exact. And then finally, the last section, I'll look at search for extraterrestrial intelligence, some of the things that have been done to try to look for signs of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Could other life be out there? Yeah. Are we ever going to be able to detect it? You know, if there's a great colony of rabbits on Alpha Centauri, are we going to be able to communicate with them from here? Not unless they've developed some kind of radio communication that can, trans that can go travel between the stars. So, so when we look outside of our, of our solar system, we really have to look for intelligent life, something comparable to ours. Honestly, Alpha Centauri could have a civilization like ours at the time of the American Revolution. Could we communicate with them? No, they don't have any kind of time of the Civil War still. No. no. It's only been the last hundred years or so that we've actually been able to communicate. That we have been able to communicate. So and that means anything more than a hundred light years away from us can't even get our signals yet. So what we're going to look at, looking at life, you've got to define what, what do we mean by life. It's one of those easy, right? You know, you know it when you see it. You know what life is. But it's very difficult to actually come up with definition. And we do have quite a bit of bias in you know, what we tend to think of as what's required for life. Well, you need a certain temperatures. You need water. You need oxygen. Right? I mean, that's typical things. If you say, what do you need for life? Those are typical things that come up. But are they everything? Are they things that you have to have? Do you have to have a specific temperature? Could life form at hundreds, many hundreds of degrees Fahrenheit. So could you have life on the surface of Venus that forms something a little different? You know, not everything is, you know, by our own bias, we tend to look at, well, you have to have this because we couldn't survive in that. But there are, you know, creatures that can survive the vacuum of space, that can survive extremely high temperatures, that can, can survive without any oxygen at all. So we have to define, really, what do we mean by life? And if we want to look out, look out for life, for forms that are not just here on Earth, again, that's our bias. It's the only place we know that life exists, for sure, is here on the Earth. It's more difficult to be able to define exactly what we mean by life. So what we get of this, there's a couple of things that are very general that can explain what we mean, what, we, what kind of things would be, uh, and the characteristics that any life form should have.
And those are like the ability to react to its environment, ability to grow, right? So something would be, be able to grow in some way, taking in nourishment, converting that into energy, ability to reproduce, and ability to evolve. So pretty much general characteristics. You know, it doesn't involve any water. You know, doesn't involve oxygen. Doesn't involve any specific temperatures. Trying to come up with very general things that any sort of living, any sort of life form should be able to have. So any sort of life form that we see should be able to have all of these, all of these characteristics. So that can allow for a lot of other types of life that we don't necessarily see here on Earth. Right? Science fiction likes to do what? You know, life based on silicon instead of carbon. Right? So, you know, the rock creatures. Because silicon and carbon have a very similar chemical structure. They're right below each other in the periodic table. Silicon can form bonds much like carbon does in terms of uh, organic molecules. So that's why silicon is usually thought of. So that allows for things like this. It would allow for you know, a creature that could breathe something other than oxygen, could use something else for an energy source. Doesn't require any kind of, any kind of water. So just very general forms that anything, any life form should have. And pretty much scientists will generally agree that you know, something does not have these capabilities, it's probably not a life form. So that's what we look for when we look for life forms elsewhere. Of course, I said, outside our solar system, all we can do is communicate by radio waves. So we can't communicate with lots of things. They could be out there, we just can't communicate with them. But when we look within our solar system, we've been able to test, especially on Mars, we've looked for a lot of, you know, done a lot of tests for living creatures on Mars. Well, we can look for littler things. We could look for bacteria and microbes on Mars. Nothing um, accurate, nothing found for sure yet. There's been some you know, hints that maybe something is present and then something else, but it could be a chemical reaction. So very difficult to really be able to, to find. Alright, here's the history of the course that we just went through, almost done with now. We've talked about different types of evolution here from particles, that's the early history of the universe, to forming galaxies. Galactic evolution, stellar evolution, we talked about that. And talked about planetary evolution, forming of planets. And that's about where we finish. So that's really where this course ends here. And then I kind of zip through the last of this, which is chemical evolution, biological evolution, and then cultural evolution is the subject of the last chapter. So we've looked at a lot of this in great detail. We looked at planets, we talked a little bit about planets, we talked in detail, great detail about stars and galaxies, and we just finished a chapter talking about particles forming, the, forming in the very early universe. So we've looked at a number of these. Now what we have to continue on in order to really determine you know, how many intelligent civilizations are there out there, we really need to look and be able to understand more about what happens on the planets. How do we form different chemical compounds? How could we form life? And how does that life evolve and change to be able to communicate? Because as I said, you can have life forms, you can have the planet that have the planet of the dolphins and the planet of the bunnies, and we're not going to be able to communicate with them unless they have a technological civilization. Doesn't mean if we didn't have a rocket that could get us there, we could find them. But in order to communicate with them from Earth, the only thing we can look for is intelligent life in the mold of ourselves. 
you know, based on us. If they didn't develop you know, radio communications, then we'd never be able to communicate with them. All right. So what do we see here? You'll see, again, I skipped a couple of slides there if you're following along. This is actually a diagram of an experiment that was done decades ago. What they did was uh, Miller and Urey took gases that would have made up the early Earth's atmosphere, put them together, had little electrical sparks for lightning, and ran those through this system. So you'd boil the water, you'd get steam evaporating, come into these gases that had the Earth's atmosphere, condense that material back out, and you'd have a little trap here where you, could, where you found that from these very basic chemical compounds that would have made up the Earth's atmosphere, you were able to create amino acids. Now if you know what an amino acid is, that's the basic building block that makes up your DNA. So amino acids are what make up your DNA. So amino acids aren't living creatures. They're just a very complex organic molecule, but they're very easy to form. Right? Take very basic things. You take you know, methane and ammonia, water, you know, all that kind of stuff, and subject it to rather harsh conditions that would have been present on the early Earth, and you can form those amino acids. No, you don't put them together in any kind of reasonable form. It doesn't create DNA, let alone any kind of little creature you know, sneaking out there waving, hi, here I am. You know, Nothing like that. But we can form these very easily and we find them elsewhere too. Amino acids can be found in things like comets, which are subjected to pretty harsh conditions. We find them in you know, other parts of the solar system, other parts of the universe. So we can actually detect the signatures of these amino acids. They're very easy to form. Big question, how do you go from that to life? We, that, that's, not, that's not something we can answer that science can really answer at this point. How do we get from one to the other? We have not been able to do this and create even the simplest bacteria. But the amino acids are very easy to form and we find them uh, quite often in the universe. So, what kind of life what we, might we find in the solar system? Well, here's where our bias comes in, right? Well, it's got to be carbon-based and it's got to originate in liquid water. So that's our bias because that's what we see here on Earth, right? Life requires water, lots of water, and it requires, and it's all based on carbon. So is this kind of life likely to be found in our solar system? If we did, Mars would be the best choice. Mars had liquid water at some point in the past, and could have had, and would certainly have had, you know, carbon and other compounds present early on in its history. Problem was, Mars was too small. It didn't hold on to its atmosphere. So it's now got to the point where you cannot have liquid water on Mars. The temperature and pressures are not, will not allow liquid water on the surface of Mars. We still have been looking. They've got the rovers there exploring Mars right now. We had the Viking probes back in the 70s doing different kind of tests on Mars, trying to be able to find, can we, can we uncover if there is any kind of life on Mars? Europa or Titan, those are two other possibilities. Europa has that great ocean uh, beneath an ice surface, so it has liquid water. Titan, not liquid water, but methane in a liquid form is present on the surface of that moon. So those are more long shots. Pretty much any place else in the solar system is not going to have any kind of life as we know it here on Earth. Venus might be about the same size, but no way it's going to have any kind of life based on water or anything, you know, carbon-based life based on water. 
So anything like us, those are the only places we could really look. And again, Mars has been pretty well studied. If there was any uh, life there of complex life, it would have been found by now. I'm sure we would have found something. Possibilities that there still either have been, either there were or there still are some kind of you know, microbial or bacterial life. That is still a possibility. That has not been ruled out. But certainly that there's any intelligent, you know, great intelligent civilization on Mars, which wasn't that far-fetched of an idea, you know, 100, 130 years ago. Not all that long ago was not a far-fetched idea, but it's pretty much ruled out. So that's about the only place we'd be likely to find anything, anything like that. All right. What about the alternatives? Why do, we have to, why do we have to be stuck with carbon? Why not silicon? Well, silicon does bond together with other atoms, much like carbon does. As I said, it's right below it in the periodic table. Uh, carbon is very good at forming bonds because it has four free electrons. It can combine with all sorts of things and make big, long chains. So, carbon, so silicon could do that. It can form chains like that as well. Could the liquid, why do you have to have liquid water? You know, we've got liquid methane out there on Titan. Why couldn't we use liquid methane to form as the, as the liquid based to form some kind of life? Or a liquid ammonia. You know, why couldn't you do that? Sounds impossible to us, you know, they'd be poison to us. But you know, could there be another, another civilization where it's all based on that and water would be, you know, poison essentially to them. But Silicon can form complex molecules, but they're not near as stable as the carbon ones. So it can form some complex, but some of those uh, you know, gigantic DNA chains are literally very long. Not just you know, microscopic, but if you stretch out your DNA, it's tremendous in size. So very unlikely that silicon could form something that complex. Again, is it that or are we just looking at our bias too again? Could there be something that we don't think about that you know, some way life was able to do that. Until we actually find some kind of life based on silicon, it's you know, really open. Liquid ammonia or liquid methane certainly would work, but they're also incredibly cold. So to have liquid ammonia, liquid methane, extremely cold temperatures, meaning that everything goes a lot slower than it otherwise would. So chemical reactions, right? You're taking, if you're taking chemistry, chemical reactions go much better when you heat things up. Everything's moving faster and the chemical reactions go a lot faster. If you cool everything off, the chemical reactions typically will go a lot slower. So in order to form these complex molecules in liquid ammonia or liquid methane would take a lot longer time to do it than it would in water, which can be at a much warmer temperature. So you'd need something at a warmer temperature. So there are possibilities. It doesn't mean that they're being ruled out. It just means that they're not as likely as you might hope in the first place. All right. Now we'll jump to what you've already looked at. This is the Drake equation picture f in picture form that you used. And essentially what it does is it takes all the stars in the Milky Way and it takes a bunch of factors and cuts out all the, cuts out all the stars that would not be uh, reasonable to have an intelligent civilization. So this is just sort of shown in picture form. There's all the stars. Your first cut may knock out all of those ones you can wipe out and then your next one takes out another chunk and this one takes out another chunk and you end up with those, those stars down at the bottom that actually have a technical society that's still in existence. So you can make an estimate on all these numbers. We can make an estimate on all of the numbers. In fact, some of them are pretty good estimates. 
The first one, how many stars are there in the Milky Way? It's not very bad. I can get a pretty good estimate of that. Count up, might not be perfect, but you know, to within a couple percent, we can count how many stars there are in the Milky Way. When it comes to things like how many of those stars have planets, uh, how many of them are in the habitable zone of their star, we can still get a pretty good estimate on those. Won't be perfect, but they'll be get a pretty good idea. We're starting to get more and more measurements of how many stars have planets. It's a lot of them. You know, it's not just our solar system is not unusual. How many that could be in the habitable zone? Statistically, you can probably get a pretty good estimate on that. I mean, not, again, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly you know one planet per star or you know two planets per star, but you could get a pretty good estimate on those. Here's where it falls apart: is all these last ones. And if you looked at your numbers when we did that, you did this on Monday. There's quite a big variance that you can put in for those last numbers, and we honestly have no clue what any of them are. We can get an estimate, what we think. But there's no reason that you couldn't put a one-on-one, one being 100% of the, keeping 100% of the stars, or, on the other hand, keeping you know one one billionth of them, and each of them would be you know reasonable estimates. Now, the way you looked at this last time for the Drake equation was like more like this, as a series of numbers that you had to multiply together. It can be done in a couple different ways. But what it gives you is the number of civilizations that are now present in the galaxy. If you figure out these other seven numbers, it tells you exactly how many civilizations are there. You can go count them. Tell you exactly this: 253 out there to get the numbers. Problem again is that we don't know all these numbers well enough to get an accurate value. This one isn't very bad. This is one that gives us how many stars are forming. So how many stars have formed in the galaxy? I can get a pretty good idea on that. We can get a pretty good number for that one. How many stars have planetary systems? A lot of them. Really, a lot of them now. It looks like a lot of stars actually have planetary systems. We're finding hundreds of planets. And the method that we use to discover them only detects rare cases of planets. So if we're detecting a lot of them, when we're only detecting the extreme cases, then that means there's probably a lot of them out there. So it seems like it's very likely, based on current measurements, that a big fraction of the stars actually have planetary systems. Average number of habitable planets within those systems? One, two. No, it's probably not going to be. It's not going to be zero. That just means that they're in the right range to have for us liquid water. So you know, maybe one, maybe some would have none, but you could probably get a reasonable average and get it to within a factor of two or so. You know, maybe it's one, maybe it's two. Something like that. Now come the problem ones. Once you have those, we can we can use this is the astronomy part. We can get a pretty good number on that. The rest of this uh, requires more biology and technology. So what goes on here is much harder to figure out. On what fraction of those habitable planets does life arise? Well, how many planets do we know where life has arisen? One. Are we the common thing or are we the oddball? Do most planets not form life or do most planets form life? You can make an argument either way, but until we find another civilization, you know, it could very easily be either way. There could be hundreds and hundreds of planets out there with life on them, or we could be the only one. So I can't really give you a good number because we only have. I can use statistics on the previous ones. We can estimate how many planets are in habitable zones. We can estimate the fraction of stars with planets. We have no statistics when it comes to this because we've only got one. We got us. 
So yeah, life has arisen once. Has it arisen multiple times? Or is it that one in a billion, billion, billion time that life happens to occur? The next fraction that you use is if you form life, does it form intelligent life? Once again, yeah, we did. If you want to call us intelligent, you know, that can be debated too. But, you know, fraction of does intelligent life develop? Or does it always? Do you have the planet of the amoeba? Or the bunny rabbits? Or, you know, whatever the dolphins, whatever else that where the intelligence is well, where the intelligence is not the same as what we have here. So you could have all those planets. We can't communicate with them, so we can't include them. For what we want to do here, we have to have intelligent life that we're able to communicate with. Here's the, here's the next jump. How many of them develop a technological society? So if you form an intelligent civilization, do you form, do you do technology? Well, here the dolphins come back in, right? You have the dolphin, the planet of the dolphins, they might become and they might evolve to intelligence. Are they going to become a technological society? Are the dolphins going to create radio telescopes? How? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's going to be the hard thing. Could, could they be intelligent? Yeah, certainly you could have a planet of very intelligent dolphins, but if they're not able to communicate with us, it doesn't help us with what we're wanting to do here. Until we can go and explore the universe and really look for those, that leaves us, you know, do we form, what kind of fraction of planets form, intel, you know, form a technological society? Again, with us, if we're the common situation, it's one, one, and one. But it makes a big difference if it's one, one, and one, or one in a billion, one in a billion, and one in a billion. If you multiply those one in a billions times each other, you've got a very tiny fraction. You've wiped out all the stars in the galaxy very, very quickly. The last one is even worse. If you thought those ones were bad that we had no clue on, this one we have absolutely no clue on. How long does a technological, technologically competent civilization last? Meaning that it can communicate with radio communication. We developed radio communication in the 1920s, and it wasn't long after that that we developed nuclear weapons. So, do most civilizations survive, or do most civilizations destroy themselves? Do they last 50 years, 100 years? You know, we're not that far from, we're only, we're only not even in 100 years, really, of radio communication yet. So, how long does the civilization last? Are we, you know, are we already lasted a long time? Do most civilizations destroy themselves in 20 or 30 years? Make it hard to communicate with them if they don't last very long. Or do they last millions of years? We don't even have one statistic there. We only know how long we've lasted so far. We don't know how long we will last. So, this last number we have absolutely no values on. But if we try to be um, very optimistic on these estimates, I've skipped through the whole bunch of slides in there that really I went through them all on that slide that went through all these estimates. If we went and said just these were the numbers we put in, you multiply this times this times everything up to, everything up to that last term, you get one. That's being really optimistic because that's saying that life evolves and that it becomes intelligent and that it becomes a technological society every single time. So we're really on the optimistic side of the numbers. We left off the last term here. We didn't figure out what the average lifetime of a technologically uh, civilization, technological civilization would be. But because we simplified this and made it all one, that means that how many intelligent civilizations there are now in the Milky Way galaxy is equal to the average lifetime. So if the average left lifetime is 10 years, then there's 10 of us in the, in the galaxy. 
If it's a million years, then there's a million, a million of us. So being able to figure that out, again, we still have no clue on what this number could be, but we've kind of simplified things out, out there a little bit. So, average lifetime, yeah, anyway, so this is just summarizing what I said a little bit. We can't even use ourselves as an example. We've been a technological civilization for about 100 years, meaning that any star more than 100 light years away from us couldn't even detect us as a technological civilization. Something, you know, 200 light years away from us is detecting us as, our, as we were in 1813. Well, we weren't putting out a lot of radio signals in 1813. So, no way to, communi- no way to communicate for them to communicate with us. Could we detect a signal from them? Yes, but they wouldn't be able to detect us yet. And again, we don't know how long our civilization will last. Are we just getting started and come back a million years from now and we'll still be here? Or are we, we have another 20, 30, 50, 100 years to go. We don't know what that is. And without being able to look at a lot of civilizations and how long they last, there's no way to get any kind of statistics on that. Question? question? Yeah. So, Yes. Yes. You could detect radio emissions from them. You wouldn't really, unlike the science fiction, you really wouldn't be able to detect, to watch their TV shows, or they couldn't watch our TV shows. Those signals are way too weak. The carrier waves that they're sent on are strong, though. So you could detect the signal from them. But you wouldn't necessarily be able to watch their shows. Maybe you'd want to, maybe you wouldn't want to. Maybe they're like ours and you don't want to watch them. I don't know. They traveled exactly the speed of light. Yep. So it could take, if it's 100 light years away, it takes 100 years for them to get to us. Yep. So, again, as I said, we gave one, we, we assigned very optimistic values to several things that could have been as easily one in a million or one in a billion. Drop one of those, and our, civiliz- and our number of civilizations really, really drops fast. Now, in order to look for these, Let's be really, really optimistic. Super optimistic. Civilization lasts a million years. That's pretty optimistic, seems, you know. Okay. That means there should be a million civilizations in our galaxy, just in our galaxy. Boy, that's a lot. But on average, that means they'd be about 100 light years apart. So our nearest neighbor would be, our nearest intelligent technological civilization would be 100 light years away. Even if there's a million of them within our galaxy. Just to get an idea of how big everything is. If we want to communicate with them, takes us, we send them a signal today, we say hi, they get it 100 years from now, 2113, they send it back immediately, say hi, 2213, we've got the signal. Not a very efficient, not a very efficient method of communications. So we're likely to be able to someday perhaps detect something, but not really to be able to communicate. Even the closest star is a little over four light years away. I think one of your questions on the lab asked you to figure out how many, how long it would take. It's a little over eight, about eight and a half years. So if you do that, you know, their signals, what they see from us is what everything was eight and a half years ago. Quite, quite different and very difficult to communicate when you've got that kind of time lag. All right, I had a couple more to show you here. How are we communicating? Well, here's a plaque that was sent out on Pioneer 10. 
the whole bunch of information. That's Pioneer 10 is in the background, is that big radio dish here, uh, giving it an idea of the human size. So you have the two human figures next to it, uh, showing where it came from. Here's our solar system. You can tell when it, done, when it was done, there's Pluto. So this was actually done you know, before Pluto was demoted, so this is when this was sent out. So you've got all nine planets there, showing where the spacecraft came from. The other information is just to try to give other ideas of an intelligent, uh, that it's an intelligent civilization. These, this little uh, starburst thing here is really showing the positioning of a bunch of pulsars from the Earth. So here we identified them and there's a binary code that tells you know, the period of pulsation. Something that another civilization should hopefully be able to understand and be able to work backwards. If you like the little googly cat eyes up at the top, right? That's actually showing the hydrogen atom with its spin flipping. So it's a hydrogen atom, a proton, and an electron. And there's a little denser part here, so the spins are opposite here. The spins are the same direction here. That's what forms the main hydrogen radio line that is detected throughout the universe. So gives us a way to, again, showing something there, some sort of every communication that everybody should understand. Now Voyager actually did something similar, but not a plaque, but it's actually a record that is sent out. So the golden record that was sent out. So if the other civilization can decipher how to play it, it, can, it has you know, greetings from the leaders of the time and all sorts of other information, you know, uh, all sorts of other stuff that was sent out on that. Now, these are sent out, Pioneer 10, Voyagers, they're out towards the edge of the solar system. They're nowhere near, they're just hitting interstellar space. So they've got a long, long time before they ever get near anything, anything else. We also communicate indirectly through radio waves. Right? We're sending out radio waves and actually if you look at the Earth, here's our pulsar Earth. As these, to a distant observer, as these things rise and set, they come up over the horizon, you'll get a burst of radio waves. You'll detect the radio waves here as they're visible. And then as they've set here, you'd see it. So you'd see here in this case, over the course of the day, you might see here's the North American East Coast setting. So you're going to disappear, that's going to disappear. There's the West Coast. There's Western Europe. A little bit for Australia, a little bit for Japan. There's the North American East Coast again and the West Coast. And Western, so if you'd repeat that, you'd get actually a pattern that you could detect. Again, not the exact signals, but the carrier waves that are sent by those would be detectable. You'd have to have a very powerful radio telescope to be able to do them, but you can actually get that kind of pattern that you'd be able to, det you'd be able to detect. And we've been sending those signal out for close to 100 years now. So that means anything within 100 light years of us, a big sphere 100 light years across, would be able to detect radio emissions. Anything beyond that, as far as they're concerned, we're not a technological society, right, yet. Because we haven't had time for that light to get there. All right, looking for signals. If we're going to look for signals, where are we going to, where are we going to do them? Uh, radio part of the spectrum is most important because it travels through the galactic dust. It it's much easier to communicate that way. What this graph is showing you is First of all, the atmosphere here, this is the cosmic microwave background we just looked at in the last chapter. It gets noisier out in this part. Uh, this is the galaxy. Galaxy has a spectrum that gets very noisy at these lower frequencies. It gets hard there. Um, you also get the atmosphere 
Earth's atmosphere, which has all this oxygen and water that causes problems in the radio spectrum. If you add all of those up, the intensity, this is how much noise there is, the blue line is how much noise. The higher it up, the more noise you're getting. So it's harder to make observations here. It kind of minimizes down in this little section here. And the section we also often talk about searching for is in the water hole. It's between emission of hydrogen and emission of the hydroxyl molecule. If you take hydrogen and OH and put them together, you get H2O or water, so it's the water hole. And why? Well, we think that water is important for life, at least in our case. So it might be an area that other civilizations would look as well. So many broadcasts have been done. We've sent signals out using that, those frequencies in that range. First of all, the noise is the lowest, so it's more likely to get a good signal through there. But that's the area where we've been looking. That is where a lot of the focuses here that we've been doing, either sending signals or detecting signals, have gone on. You've got to do both, right? If everybody's sitting there waiting to listen and nobody's talking, nobody's gonna, you're never going to hear anything, right? If everybody's just talking and nobody's listening, it doesn't do you much, much, much more good. You've got to be doing both. So there actually are cases where you can do both. In fact, I know there, I believe there's something they still run that you can run what in the background on your computer if you want to do part of the search, that you can actually download something that will run in the background of your computer to search, to analyze the data that's been collected from a lot of this. So to be able to do part of the SETI, what we call the SETI search, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. All right, and finally, here it is. This is the Green Bank Telescope, which has been used for a lot of searches. And there's a signal that's been detected. Okay, a simulation of a signal, not a real one. But this is the kind of data that you would get. And you'd get all this noise, but if there's actually a pattern in this data that you're detecting, if there's actually any kind of coherent pattern to it, you'd get a line going through the screen here. As of yet, as of this point, we have not actually detected anything. So, does it mean they're not out there? No. Just means we haven't, our technology is still, could be still very primitive. Doesn't feel like it to us, but you know, look back from us, go 20 years into the future and look back at what we have now, or look back at what you had 20 years ago. Right? 20 years ago would have been what? 20, 1990 something? So you had what? VHS tapes and... I'm sorry? Internet. I mean, internet was very, you know, not, not worldwide at the point. It was at the schools only, really. Colleges and things had it. So what will it be 20 years from now? You know, ours, ours could still be very primitive. You know, and it doesn't mean we won't be able to detect something at some point. All right. Any questions? Uh, the summary is up on D2L if you want to look at them. Uh, you're, welcome to do, you're welcome to do that. I'm not going to go ahead and go through that. That way I can get you your quiz done and you don't have to worry about that with the final. So, yay. Questions, questions? Yes? The review questions for chapter 18. Yes. I have not adjusted them. I have not adjusted them, no. So you can look at, but you can look at what I've talked about. Some of them are like a whole bunch of slides. I skipped six slides, in the, six or eight slides in the middle that were going through each term of the Drake equation. Well, I just went through them on one slide instead of showing you six different slides because I know I'd talk more if I did all of them. So I focused it on one. But really, there's not a lot that I cut out of, a lot of the, that I cut out. It was, that was the big chunk of what I cut out on. Homework 8 is on 17 and 18.